listening to this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The Garden Fellowship is a new and exciting church located in Burlington, North Carolina. We invite you to learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org. We invite you to worship God through the teaching of His Word. I want you to grab a Bible and join me in Luke chapter 2 this morning. We are working through this extended nativity description. Last time we, we talked about the fact that we are listening to Luke, reading how Luke is describing witnesses. He is speaking to Theophilus and, and to us, of course, about the birth of the Messiah, the most important birth in all of history. And this birth is attested, the the veracity of of the episode is attested by numerous witnesses. It's not as though just one person is telling us that this has happened. Luke is providing witnesses. And so we talked last time about how the credibility of these witnesses is being established, that uh, each of the ones, Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary and Joseph, we talked about last week, their their righteousness, their upstandingness, their trustworthiness is established for us so that we can then feel confident in believing, at least Theophilus can feel confident in trusting and believing what these witnesses have, have to say to him about the Messiah that is born here. So today, we, we tried last week to also cover Simeon and Anna and uh, how foolish I was to think I could do all of that in one message. Didn't even quite get close to making it through those two. So we saved Simeon and Anna for today. And here's what always happens. Whenever I plan to preach a certain section of Scripture and then don't make it through it, and then sort of half of it is left for the next time, by the time I get around to preaching the next half of it, then guess what? God has added a whole bunch more onto it. So we don't have a half message today. We have a full one. So we're going to look at Simeon and Anna today. Take a look at Luke chapter 2. And we're going to look at verse 25 through verse 38. Starting from verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. So we have before us the story of Simeon and Anna. This is the only place in Scripture that either of these two guys are discussed. 
And they are also one of Luke's witnesses, witnesses to the identity of the Messiah, the child king that is born. Let's begin by taking a look at Simeon. Simeon, it's, it's amazing as I was sort of studying through this this week, remarkably God has preserved for us not only the, the written word about Simeon, but he's also preserved, I didn't know this, um, some photographic evidence of Simeon. I did not realize that we actually have a real authentic photograph of Simeon. And you see actually Anna is in the picture too. And the baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph there. It's actually one of the first selfies that uh, Simeon took there. And if it wasn't for this photographic evidence, we would never have known that not only was Simeon white, but also Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus are as white as they can be, with even blue eyes for the little baby Jesus there. We wouldn't have known that without this photographic evidence. So thank you, Lord, for preserving that for us. But in any case, just a little fun there. Um, Simeon, let's talk, what I want to do is I, don't, I want to just walk through it sort of step by step and just point out a few things about what Luke is telling us and then do the same thing for Anna and then sort of take a step back and look at what Luke has for us in uh, the stories of Simeon and Anna. So as we begin in verse 25, there's a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon and this man was righteous and devout. So once again, there's the theme of righteousness. And like we said last time, when when Scripture speaks to us of a person being righteous, it's not speaking in the terms of righteousness that we as we would use the term today, sort of as a self-righteous description. But Luke is describing a person that is right with God, having received from God forgiveness of sin, and is in fellowship with God, in relationship with God. Simeon also, just as Elizabeth and Zacharias and, and Mary and Joseph he is in right relationship with God because he is trusting in the promise of the Messiah that God will send. So he is righteous, but Simeon is also described as devout. Now this word devout is a word that literally means careful. In fact, it used to, generations and generations ago, the word that we see in our scriptures translated devout used to be translated cautious. So he was righteous and cautious or careful. In other words, he was in right relationship with God and because he was in right, right relationship with God, he was very careful to keep the commandments of God. His careful, cautious keeping of God's law did not make him righteous with God, but that was a result of his being forgiven and having received from God forgiveness for his sins. So he was righteous and he was devout, but notice also, that as far as we can tell, he was just a regular guy. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't of the uh, of the priestly tribe. He wasn't a Pharisee. He wasn't someone of any particular social standing. Apparently, he was just a regular sort of Christ follower, a regular, we would call layman today, a, a righteous and devout person. So he's righteous and devout, but he's also waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So somehow, at some point in his life, we'll see later on that, that, that Luke is telling us that he's older now, but at some point in his life, maybe five years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, somehow God revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen Messiah. Now Israel has been waiting for Messiah for 
hundreds of years, thousands of years, they have been anticipating and waiting for Messiah. And many, many people have lived their life looking for Messiah, gone on to the next life, still not having seen Messiah come, yet it's told to Simeon that you will not die until you have seen Messiah. So think for just a moment about what that information must have meant to Simeon. Not only did it bring certainly joy and anticipation, gratitude that God would choose him to be a person that that will see Messiah before he dies, but also just think of sort of the practical implications for his life. He knows he will not die before seeing Messiah. So just imagine, you know, as Simeon's wife was just sort of nagging him about how he ate. You know, you really need to watch what you eat a little bit more, eat a little bit less red meat. You need to take better care of yourself, Simeon. Nah. Nope. I've got it from good authority. I'm just fine. I'm going to eat all the red meat I want. Exactly. We kind of we kind of joke about it, but it'd be a huge temptation to to not necessarily live looking and anticipating and trusting that Messiah is going to come at any moment. So uh, anyway, he's given this this incredible information that he's not going to die until Messiah has come, until he sees the Lord's Christ. And then verse twenty seven, and he came in the spirit into the temple. He came in the spirit reminds us of the same way that John is described. You remember as John in the Revelation is giving his revelation, he is in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. So it doesn't mean that John was in this sort of otherworldly trance necessarily, nor was uh, Simeon in this sort of trance as he comes into the, into the temple. It just means he's filled with the Spirit. The Spirit is active in his heart. The Spirit is active in his thoughts. He is in the Spirit. Just in the same way that we all should come into the gathering of God's people in the Spirit. So he came into the temple in the Spirit, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God and said the following. So seemingly, Simeon didn't know that, that Messiah, that Jesus was coming. Seemingly, Mary and Joseph just, this is the day that they bring Jesus to the temple, and somehow God prompts Simeon to come on this day, and there's this meeting here. He sees Messiah, and just like the shepherds, he knows what he's looking at. And he um, then from verse 29, he has this sort of song to say, which, by the way, this is the fourth song that we've read about the Christ. The first one was was uh, Elizabeth's, and then came um, uh, Mary's, and then the angels, and now this is the fourth song of praise to God for the Messiah. So verse 29, Lord... Now you are letting your servant depart in peace. So it's, it's as though now he's seen the Christ. He knows that death is now coming. So apparently he's aged, maybe elderly. It's not like he's saying, okay, now I've seen the Christ. And so I, can, I know I've seen him now for however long, however much longer I live. I know I've seen the Christ. It's as though he's been looking for this. And now he's seen this. He's aged and he's elderly. Now I can depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. So once again, Mary and Joseph know who the child is. They've been told by the angel, but just like when the shepherds came, they marveled at what was said with the testimony that was given. Uh, just as other people affirm our faith, 
it is sort of one of those things where you go, yeah, yeah, and you sort of marvel that God has put in the hearts of other people the same thing that he's put in your heart. So Mary and Joseph marvel at what Simeon has said. They're probably also marveling at the fact that Simeon recognizes him without necessarily being told by Mary and Joseph or anyone the identity of the child. And so they marvel at this. And then verse 34, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. We see there a premonition, a foreshadowing, so to speak, of the uh, the crucifixion, so that the thoughts of, the thought so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So there's uh, there's this fellow Simeon. Now let's move on to uh, Anna, verse thirty six. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel. So Anna is the Greek, sort of the Greek version of the Hebrew Hannah, which is the word for grace. So there was this prophetess whose name, her very name was Grace. And she is described as a prophetess. Now, a prophetess in the New Testament sense is not a uh, prophet in the, in the sense of the Old Testament gift of prophecy or office of prophecy. In the Old Testament, certain, certain people, certain men were given the office of prophet of God. And as that office, as a, the holder of that office, they were literally the mouthpiece of God to speak His very words. So that when God gave message to Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel or Jonah or Hosea, and they spoke that message, they were speaking the very words of God that were then written down as our inerrant Scriptures. So the Old Testament office of prophet was one that spoke the very words of God. Not, not in the sense that everything Isaiah said in his life was the very words of God. But when Isaiah spoke under inspiration of the Spirit, and as that was written down, those are now the very words of God preserved for us. Then when we come to the New Testament, we often find the office of prophet or prophetess. And the things that they say are in another sense also the words of God, but not in the same sense as the Old Testament prophet words of God that they spoke. In other words, we see, we see people in the New Testament that are prophets that speak a true and authoritative word from God, but not on the same level as inspired scripture, as inerrant scripture. And so the things that they say are true and reliable, but we didn't write them down and say, here's the book of Agabus from the book of Acts. You know, Agabus was a prophet and he spoke the words of God, but he wasn't speaking inspired scripture. So the, the gift of prophecy in the New Testament church is the gift of speaking the words of God that are applicable to someone's life that carry with it conviction of the Spirit, that carry with it encouragement of the Spirit, maybe rebuke and correction from the Spirit, that carry all those things, but they're not on the level of inspired Scripture. So in that way of speaking, in the New Testament church, anyone who preaches the Word of God should be a person that has the gift of prophecy. Not in the sense that, that I'm now speaking Scripture to you, but in the sense that, that I'm speaking as 
to whatever extent that I'm filled by the Spirit, I'm speaking the words of God to you that carry His authority. And in the same way, you as New Testament believers can also have the gift of prophecy and should as you speak to one another the words of God, words that that aren't your own words but come from the Scriptures and the Spirit uses those together in your heart to apply those to the lives of other people, people that you know, your loved ones. You are using the gift of prophecy in that sense. So Anna was described as a prophetess, a person who was known for speaking these words of God that were convicting and true and encouraging and uplifting and helpful and teaching moments and maybe even rebuking moments and correcting moments. Anna was a person that was known as having this gift. So uh, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when, from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. That's a very difficult section of Scripture to translate. And translators struggle with translating what Luke is trying to communicate there. We're not exactly sure, did he mean that she was married for seven years, and then she's been widowed for 84, or did it mean that she was married for... Uh, seven, and she remained a virgin for the first seven years of her marriage, but then she was widowed at age, age 84. It's very, Luke writes that in a way that's just very confusing to understand, but the point I think that Luke is trying to get off, get across is that this woman is very aged. She's very elderly. She's very, she's very old. And she's devout. She did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. She did not depart from the temple, but constantly worshipped, constantly prayed, and constantly fasted. Now, did that mean that she literally was at the temple 24-7? Possibly. We know that Scripture will oftentimes use hyperbole or um, a type of exaggeration, the same type of exaggeration that we would use today. You know, we hear, we read of... Uh, uh, of the scriptures telling us that all of Jerusalem was stirred up over the arrival of Jesus. Now, does that mean that every single person in Jerusalem knew that Jesus had arrived and they were stirred up? No, it doesn't mean that 100% of the occupants of Jerusalem were stirred up. It's just a way of saying everybody. It seems like everybody. Lots of people. This is just widespread, right? We use the same sort of language today, you know? When when you want to pull out of our house and get on to South Williamson at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, then everybody is on the road. doesn't mean every single person is on the road. It just means, wow, there's a lot of people on the road. And so Scripture, scripture uses the language of, of the common person. And that's how people talk. And so sometimes that's how Scripture writers will talk too. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Luke doesn't mean this literally. We do know that she was a widow, and she was an elderly widow. And we also know that around the perimeter of the, of the temple complex, there were apartments. These apartments were owned by the temple, and they would be used typically for, for example, when the priests would come and they would do their two weeks of, of, of duty. Like at the beginning of Luke, that's what Zacharias was doing. And so they would need a place to stay. And so... The, the temple grounds had a number of residences bordering around the edge of it. And so being a, an aged widow, maybe she was just a person that had been there worshiping so consistently so long that finally the, the, the priest just said, 
why don't you just live here and then this will be easier and you have a place to stay. Maybe that happened and she literally was always at the temple and always praying and always fasting. It's possible either way. But the point is that this was a lady that was extraordinarily devout. In fact, we even see that again. She was worshiping and fasting with prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to Him of all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. I'm sorry, of Jerusalem. So, what I want to do now, we sort of just sort of walk through the nuts and bolts of Simeon and Anna. I want to take a little bit of a step back and I want to see sort of the bigger landscape of what Luke is saying to us with not only Simeon and Anna, but also of the bigger picture of Mary and Joseph and Elizabeth and Zacharias. And I want to just point out something that you may not have necessarily noticed, but once you notice this, I think that it'll be clear to you that there seems to be a point that Luke is trying to make with the age of people. In other words, there are two couples that are very old, and there is one couple that is very young. Now, Simeon and Anna aren't a couple, so to speak, but we have two people at one end of the story that are very aged. And at the other end of the story, we also have two people that are also very aged, Zacharias and Elizabeth. In fact, they're so old that they're well beyond childbearing years, so much so that when Elizabeth actually becomes pregnant, everyone recognizes it as a miracle. And then Anna is described in, in very clear terms as being a very old lady, Simeon, <coughs> We're not necessarily told that he's old, but when he sees the Christ, he says, that's what I was waiting for. That's why God was keeping me alive. So the story is bookended by two very old sets of people. And in the middle is one set of people that's very young, Mary and Joseph. We don't know how old Joseph was. He was probably older than Mary. But Mary was something like 12 or 13. And so the contrast between the two, I think, is remarkable. That in the middle of the story, there's this very, very young girl. And on the ends of the story are very old people. Now, it's not, don't get me wrong, Luke's not making up the details here. He's, he's telling to us the actual facts that he's discovered through his research. But he's... Nevertheless, arranging the story and telling the story to us in such a way that that seems to be a prominent feature. He's told us of Simeon and Anna, Elizabeth and Zacharias that none of the other gospel writers told us about. And he's put them in such a way in the story that we seem to notice their ages. And I think that what Luke is trying to say to us, I think he's trying to, to paint a picture for us of the intersection between the, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. I think what he's saying to us is here is where the Old Covenant and the New Covenant intersect. The Old Covenant as represented by the cream of the crop, the best that the Old Covenant had to offer. Elizabeth and Zacharias, devout, righteous people. Simeon and Anna, devout, righteous people living by faith under the old covenant 
trusting in the promise of the Messiah under the old covenant. And here they are, aged at the point of death. And then here comes this young 12-year-old baby who gives birth to a baby herself. And that baby is the arrival of the new covenant. I think he wants us to see sort of that transition, that, that intersection. Later on in chapter 16, verse 16, Luke is the only gospel writer that, that has these words of Jesus. Jesus says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. Luke is the only gospel writer that records that. And so I think what Luke wants us to see is this contrast between the old that is passing away and the new that has arrived. But also, I think he wants us to see that there is no conflict between the two. The old is passing away, but the new is coming without conflict with the old. In fact, the new is coming in fulfillment of the old. We see that in a couple of ways. I think, first of all, we see it from the reactions of every representative of the old covenant. Elizabeth, Zacharias, Simeon, and Anna are all overjoyed at the arrival of Messiah. There is not one hint of, oh, this means a change. Things are going to be different now. All those sacrifices and temple rituals that we like so much, there's not a hint of that. There's nothing but excitement and joy because new covenant has arrived. Messiah has arrived. So there is no friction. There is no conflict between the two. As Jesus will go on to say in Matthew's Gospel that He doesn't come to abolish the law. He comes to fulfill it. Or Luke will tell us in very eloquent terms himself at the end of his Gospel, once again, you know, our entire study through Luke, we're going to constantly be seeing things that only Luke tells us. Here's another instance that only Luke gives us. In chapter 24, you don't necessarily have to turn there, but you're familiar with Jesus on the road to Emmaus with the disciples there. And Jesus um, says to them, my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so Luke is showing us, I think, that Messiah is here. He is new covenant. But the new covenant is not violently doing away with the old. The new covenant is not struggling with the old and overcoming the old. The new covenant is why the old covenant was here. Everything in the Old Covenant made us long for and look to and wait for and desire the New Covenant to arrive. Look down at verse 39. Verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee. Did Luke leave something out? Anybody that knows the story, did Luke leave a little bit out? Where did he leave out? King Herod? Slaughtering two-year-old baby boys? And Mary and Joseph, who didn't go from Jerusalem to Nazareth, they went from Jerusalem to Egypt, and then a couple of years later to Nazareth. Luke leaves all of that out. Why? 
It's only two possibilities. One, he didn't know. He wasn't aware that Jesus was taken, was, was, was fled to Egypt. He didn't know that there was a slaughter of baby boys in Bethlehem. In his conversations with Mary, she forgot to tell him about that. Or he intentionally skips over it because he has a larger point to make. And that story doesn't fit his point. It's not as though Luke is hiding anything. But all of the gospel writers, as we said when we began, all the gospel writers are, are writing for a specific audience with a specific purpose. And Luke's writing is geared toward a specific purpose. He's writing to a Gentile, a Roman, who holds the law and order in high regard. And Luke does not want Theophilus to think of Jesus as some violent revolutionary. That when he comes on the scene, all of a sudden now King Herod is killing baby boys and they're fleeing to Egypt and all this, this violent uprising, this sectarian violence is going on. Luke does, Luke's not trying to tell that story to Theophilus. He's telling the story to Theophilus that Jesus Christ not only was born to parents who were perfect, or I shouldn't say perfect, who were faithful obeyers of the law, as was Jesus. And he was the fulfillment of what Judaism was all about. Because you see, Judaism was the accepted orthodox faith uh, of the Jews there in Palestine that the Romans fully accepted and fully tolerated. And Luke doesn't want Theophilus to think, oh, these, these Christians are some sort of wild-haired sectarians that all they want to do is just overthrow the old. No, he wants Theophilus to see Jesus is the fulfillment of the old. He's why the old was here. He's not a new religion. He is the fulfillment of what the Jews have always been looking for. And so he's not hiding anything with Jesus' fleeing to Egypt. He's, he's selecting the, the, the incidents that he includes in his gospel to tell that particular story. So here is um, sort of, I think, the big picture of what's going on with Elizabeth, Zacharias, Mary Joseph, Simeon, Anna. Uh, I want to point out just a couple more things, and then I want to take one further step backwards and sort of look at the big picture of the first two chapters so far and see what Luke has for us. So first of all, the first thing I want to point out is verse 29. This is, once again, the song of Simeon. Lord, you now are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Now, who is Luke? He is a Gentile. And who is Theophilus? He is also a Gentile. So a Gentile writing to, the, to a Gentile, making him aware of the song of praise of a Jew who says, here is the one sent for the revelation of the Gentiles so that their eyes may be opened and they may see the truth. Luke wants Theophilus to recognize that, of course, Jesus was, was not the Messiah. Of, of Jewish people. Jesus is the Messiah of the world. Just, uh, just for example, in Isaiah 49, verse 6, we read here the Father speaking to the Son, and He says, it is, you know, it is too light of a thing that you should be My servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations 
that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It's too small of a thing, son, that you would be sent to save the Jews. That's too small. I'm sending you as a light to all people, a light to the world, of whom Theophilus is part, of course. So that's the first thing to see. The second thing is although Luke is painting a picture of Jesus that was not someone who came and his followers sort of had this violent, revolutionary, uprising intent, but instead theirs was the mission of fulfilling what the Old Covenant pointed to. Even though Luke is painting that picture, he's also he also wants Theophilus to recognize that you know, there has been some conflict. Let's not ignore the, the fact that when the old is passing away and the new is coming, there is conflict involved. So he says, Simeon says, verse 34 to Mary, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and for a sword, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So, just like Jesus tells the parable of the wineskins, the old wineskins cannot hold the new wine because the new wine will burst the old wineskins. In the same way, the new, when the new comes and the old is fulfilled, there will be some conflict in that. There will be those who are so in love with the old for the sake of the old that they will fight against the old passing away. And they will fight even against the fulfillment of what they claim to have loved. So there will be conflict. And there was conflict, of course, in Jesus' life. And it end, ended, of course, violently on the cross. But Luke wants Theophilus, of course, to recognize that even though this wasn't Jesus' intent, conflict did arise naturally from the passing away of the old and the coming of the new. So that's sort of a um, maybe a 5,000-foot overpass. Now let's sort of climb up and we'll make a 10,000-foot overpass at what Luke, I believe, has for us here. And there's one thing that, for me anyway, is a, is a big clue for what he has to say to us. And that is this concept that we read two times from Simeon and Anna, that both of them are anxiously awaiting the consolation or the redemption of Israel or Jerusalem. We see it in two places in verse 30, uh, I'm sorry, verse 25. Speaking of Simeon, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Verse uh, 38, when Anna has blessed the boy and spoken, then she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Naturally, we would assume that Anna includes herself in that group. So a couple places, as far as I know, the only two places that we find Phrases that are exactly like that for uh, Old Covenant believers waiting for the consolation or the comforting or the consoling of Israel, waiting anxiously for the redemption of Israel. And so I think that what Luke wants Theophilus to see here, and by extension he wants us to see as well, is he wants us to see the work that God does in the heart of the person who can receive Christ. And the work that God does in the heart of the person who can receive Christ is a work of discontentment, a work of, of stirring up in our hearts a longing to see Jesus. 
So here are Simeon and Anna. They saw Jesus the first time he comes. And we are told that both of them lived their life with a heart that longed to see Messiah. They weren't necessarily, I wouldn't say, think that we could say that they were miserable, discontented people, just unhappy with their life. But they recognized that their lives were not complete. That they were missing the biggest piece of their life. And that was seeing Messiah come. And so they were anxiously awaiting that. They were fasting and they were praying. And they were living devoutly, longing to see Messiah when He first came. Now, we live on this side of the cross. And so Messiah has come the first time. We are in a period of waiting for Messiah to come the second time. And of course, the Scriptures tell us that we are to be a people of the same heart. For example, from... Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. Here's what the writer says. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting Him. Eagerly awaiting Him. He comes to save those whose lives are lived with the view towards His return. Those whose lives are not built upon the foundation of this life here, but instead are waiting anxiously for that city that has foundations. Or uh, 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. So Paul speaks also there of the heart of the person in, in whom God has done His work. His work of stirring up in that heart and, and keeping stirred up this unending desire and longing to see Jesus, to see Him return, to see Him come and, and set this world as it should be with the King of Kings as the Sovereign Lord over. The one who would live their life in such a way that we could be eternally content here is the one that God is not doing that work in or your heart is not receptive to that stirring of God that sort of stirs the pot, sort of chunks the fire, gets the fire going that says, you know, this life is a wonderful gift from God. Enjoying His creation is an incredible thing for us to do, but this is not what I was made for. I was made to be with Jesus. Or 1 Peter 1 verse 13, Peter here turns it into a command. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other places, we could see a similar sort of idea. It's this idea that the Christ follower has a heart that can enjoy the blessings of life, can enjoy the blessings of family and friends and um, creation, yet we can never say, you know, I could see a day in which 
I could sort of get everything in my life worked out like I like it and I'd be fine. The Christ follower can't see that. The Christ follower can't see a day in which we finally make it to that financial status. We finally reach retirement. We finally have the kids we've been longing for or get the kids out of the house that we've been longing to get out of the house or whatever it may be. We finally get to that milestone and we say, I've arrived. The Christ follower can't see that. Not to say that the Christ follower wallows in despair and discontentment, but the Christ follower always has a chunk of their heart that is in another world and will not be content until we are with Jesus face to face. We hope you enjoyed this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The purpose of the Garden Fellowship Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. We hope you were blessed by this message. You can learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org. 